Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I am your host, Josiah, and I am doing sole hosting responsibilities today. As Byron would say, he has a real job, so uh, he doesn't always have time for stuff like this. So, hey, I'm, I'm glad, Byron, you have a real job, and I know you used to give me grief for only working on Sundays, but once upon a time, as a pastor, you understood the crazy chaos that is advent season and uh we're coming up on it right now we're recording this episode um after the first sunday of advent and we have a we have a guest on the show today that if you're nazarene you may have heard the name of possibly uh without further ado i I don't know what i'm going to title this episode so i may have already spoiled the spoiler but without further ado we have olivia metcalf and on facebook it says craker at the end of that that name i'm pretty sure but olivia how are you doing i'm doing well how are you Good. I've I've seen your name a lot lately. I wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I think something about writing the the Advent book for this season, Come Peasant King, has something to do with that, right? Yeah. Big honor to get to do that. By the way, I mean, I know some of the past folks that have written books, this is no shame on them, but I'm just going to say it. Yours is my favorite, so I'm sorry I, I said it, but it is what it is. I'm easy not trying to say when I'm here, right? Like that makes it. <laughs> I said easier. it. I said it to somebody else when no one was recording, if that helps <laughs> for the record. All right. All right. <laughs> no brown nosing intention whatsoever. Olivia, I didn't know if you uh, needed to have like an official title or anything like that. Do I need to call you DS, Olivia? Are you a doctor yet? I can't remember how far educationally you've gotten. Like, what is the proper way to say hi to you now? You can just call me Olivia, but I am. I am um, a couple of months away from defending my dissertation. So hopefully at some point I'll get that done, but I still won't make anybody call me doctor. Maybe my children or something. <laughs> or your husband, right? Or so, Dr. I mean, Mom, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it'll be what? Dr. Elder, BS. I mean, there's a, uh, we'll add author to the list, right? All of these things. <laughs> just this, Olivia works. <laughs> well, speaking of just Olivia, uh, I am, I'm so happy to have you on the show. I was really happy that you agreed to do this. I've been watching some of what has happened in your life from afar, but there was a time where uh, I got to know you in sort of unique circumstances, I would say. And you can feel free to chime in with any of my ma- possible misremembering. Okay. But, but do you recall an incident in a third world country in a place we called the oven where you decided because of this incident that this thing that happened, you're like, I am not going to sleep here. And how you and I discovered, I don't know, a name, we'll call it a neighbor, I guess. Are you remembering the incident in question? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but I did have to sleep there. There was no, there was no option. I mean, I, maybe I didn't sleep, but I was in that place in the nighttime with the spiders. Yes. The first time we met was, I think, in a third world country in Haiti, right? I don't know if we, uh-huh. I don't know if we all met up because we were all on, in Central California pastoring. I was in youth ministry. I think you were a co-lead pastor with your husband. Is that correct? Right. Yep. And you brought a group. Some, some of them were teens. I don't remember if there were any adults that came with you guys as well. Just teens. Yeah. 
just so you brought some teens and I brought some teens with mm-hmm. uh, the youth pastor I worked with. There's two of us, and we had a whole bunch of girls that we brought. And so, so you and the girls that we brought, I remember were, were kind of setting up shop in what we would eventually call the oven. It was the structure that the current congregation in Haiti was using for worship. Mm-hmm. And from what I recall, it was maybe 10 or 15 feet by 10 or 15 feet. I mean, not big. Right. Yeah. And, and just corrugated tin or corrugated steel walls and ceiling, right? Yep. Which is why it got the nickname the oven, because it was essentially mm-hmm. a solar An oven. oven. Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I, I distinctly remember, because like, I didn't know you that well. I didn't know your husband that well. And um, I was helping set up some of the stuff because I felt responsible for, you know, my students. and we brought one boy and like four girls or something like that. And so I was helping bring their stuff in and set up some bedding and stuff. And I don't, I don't know if you moved a thing or if I moved a thing, but we we're right next to each other. And we both looked down and then we looked at each other and I can still clearly remember your face. Cause there was a hole in the ground and mm-hmm. basically a tarantula about the size of my hand was just staring right back up at us and your mm-hmm. face. I mean, if, a, if looks could kill tarantulas, your look absolutely, absolutely. And your react, your reaction, your look and everything. I mean, it was like, okay, this is, this is great. I like Olivia. I just, for, for whatever reason, that's a fond memory for me. Like, okay, this is, this is great. Like, nope, this is not okay. Yeah. This, this is not okay. Spiders. At some, at some point we did some sort of, uh, we tried to like put an ice chest on the hole or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there were so many others that, um, that we just had to pretend <laughs> that they weren't there with their little eyeballs staring at us out of the hole. So yeah. It wasn't a very restful time. Let's just say that. <laughs> I don't remember because I thought there was one last little bit of the story. I don't remember if, if it was you or one of the teenage um, girls that we brought, but someone had a had a nightmare involving the tarantula. So I don't know. Was that you or was that one of them? Do you remember having one? I don't one? remember that part. Yeah. No. I just remember the, the living nightmare of <laughs> spiders in real life while we were awake. <laughs> Tarantulas in Haiti. Uh, that was one of my that was one of my fonder uh trips overseas i really appreciated mm-hmm. my time there getting to know you and your husband and all those teens that we brought and just being a part of some interesting life-changing experiences uh mm-hmm. we, we built a structure or we built the roof of a structure and then we helped build kind of like a, a paddock for goats and mm-hmm. they were able to worship and have a school and have a clinic and we were you know just this small piece of this puzzle and and I don't know if you remember, but I, I think we came back on, on Black Friday or like the day before Thanksgiving or something like that. And that was really hard for me. <laughs> yeah. Overwhelming, right? Yeah. Culture shock. Consumerism versus the experience that we had there was, was painful. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was crazy. But that was a formative trip for me. And I, I was always awesome. fondly, fondly looking back on those memories, especially yeah. the ones involving spiders. <laughs> Well, Olivia, but that, that's my own little personal anecdotal thing. Uh, mm-hmm. We have some traditions on the show. Um, we sometimes play really silly stereotypical games with our guests. Okay. I feel like we got to at least throw a question or two at you to kind of gauge some things. The first question, though, is, is probably really rude. I'm going to try <laughs> to ask it as really as delicately and carefully as possible. Okay. The show is called The Millennial Pastor. Mm. right so mm-hmm, millennial mm-hmm. millennial denotes a certain age range mm-hmm. i'm really trying not to ask but are you are you technically a millennial are you close like where are you at on the sliding scale of millennialness 
well, it depends on which scale you use. So which scale are you using? I need to know where you start. I am, I'm not as staunch on the whole. It has to be like 82 to 96. I basically say if you're born in the 80s or the 90s, we'll call it good. If you're close <laughs> to like the end of the 70s or the 80s, you're sort of exennial and you can choose which generation you want, I guess, is the, the latest. But I don't, I don't really know. I, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder because the whole generational terminology is based on factors that you were raised with and how you were formed as a child. So I sort of think a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder, which is why I'm still going to defer to you. <laughs> what do you say? What do you think you are? Well, I'm, so I'll just be, I'm December 20th, 1978. So almost 1979. And so I've often read that I'm a bridge, right? Between the Gen X and, and millennials. And I probably am more Gen X because of how I was raised. And I started school early. And so I always was with a grade older than myself. Um, that would have been more sort of firmly in the Gen X period. So no. I'm 42, not truly a millennial. Oh, no. Well, I'm millennial adjacent. Millennial adjacent. <laughs> well, well, good news for you. You're not the first guest that we've broken our rule okay, for. Okay, good. Good. Thank you. It's not really a hard and fast rule. So yeah. generally, we're just trying to get to know folks that, that you know, are, are worth hearing stories of. Because it seems like you have quite an interesting story. We're going to learn more about it. But before we do, we need to know a little bit about how you were brought up. Sure. We've had some fun, especially with, with pastors that grew up in the church, uh, asking some, some questions about their evangelical roots. So question one is, did, were you raised in the church? Yes, I was um, raised in a parsonage, and my dad was raised in a parsonage, and oh my, my grandpa on my mom's side was raised in a parsonage, and so I'm fourth generation Nazarene elder, and so that's pretty wild, but yeah, grew up going to church. My dad actually, so I was born with jaundice. I was born a little early and with jaundice. And he talked the nurses and the doctors into letting them take me out of the hospital for the first Sunday that I was alive to go to church. And then they had to bring me back to put me in the incubator. So oh hardcore. <laughs> so literally some of your earliest breaths were probably in a sanctuary. This is true. <laughs> oh, my Lanta. Well, then naturally the next question is, is something kind of basic. It's mm -hmm. interesting to reflect back. I, I often wonder, did I even have a choice? So was church even optional growing up? Or did you just go and, and it wasn't even like on your radar that, hey, wait, I could not do this on Sundays? Yeah, not optional, but I loved it. So I don't, I never had a sense of like, Ugh, I don't want to go. It was always a good fit for me. And I mean, I would be cranky when my parents would make us do like before color printers were a thing, which this is obviously dating me a little bit. Um, <laughs> for Advent, in fact, my mom would have us color like every week, one of the candles on the front of the bulletin to make them, you know, in full color or whatever. So I didn't love everything I had to do <laughs> as a pastor's kid, but um, I, yeah, I loved it. And there were, you know, we had some rules, uh, like when I played basketball or whatever, I didn't miss church for games or anything like that. Um, and so, but that just seems natural to me, not, not oppressive in any way. Not oppressive. Yeah. Well, this is not necessarily sort of like you're forced to do a thing or not, but it maybe informs a little bit of what your adolescence was like. Mm -hmm. Did you participate in this NAS standard thing that not all of our NAS listeners will even fully appreciate, but did you participate in quizzing? Ooh, I did as a child. I did not do teen quizzing and I hated quizzing with a passion because when you're a kid, like 
you, it was like multiple choice test in front of everybody, right? Like you pulled out your number to show. And that was so much pressure. And I was always good at taking tests and things, but having people watch you like, oh, <laughs> I hated quizzing. <laughs> it was I, terrible. <laughs> I, I'm in the same boat. I, I was in team quizzing though. And I was on a, oh. kind of like a dynasty of a team. And for the, for the person that has never experienced quizzing, make it as quick as possible. You literally sit on sort of what would be your Jeopardy buzzer and uh, you jump off of your seat. So there's some level of physical physicality <laughs> involved, but they're asking questions and you, you can jump whenever you think you know what the whole question is or when the question's over or whatever, and you're supposed to answer stuff. I was on a team with folks that memorized entire books of the Bible so that they could like jump after three, after hearing three words of a question and like give every possible question combination and answer combination. And uh, this leads me to my next question of you, actually. I went to yes. public school, so uh -huh. I, I couldn't even, you know, I went to, I went to public school and, and these friends that were on the quizzing team with me were homeschooled and had a built-in quizzing class. So it showed a little bit of the cultural distance that was happening within our own lives. So question to you, another evangelical, interesting little thing. Were you a homeschooled child? No. So no. I, uh-uh, no, um, started at a Christian school because the church my dad pastored was in Leavenworth, Washington, and they had a school there. And so uh, when I was four, I went to kindergarten and went there through fourth grade. And then we moved to the Seattle area and went into public school. And so I was a public school kid and both my parents were public school kids. And that's what we've done with our boys too, is they both, both attended the public school. So now I need to ask a serious question that I'm yeah. curious about. Was there, was there other pastoral presence or other pastors your dad would meet with that, that would homeschool their kids in the same area that you live that were non-Nazarene, just sort of like, you know, ministerial association? I don't really know about that in particular. I mean, I know when we moved to the Seattle area, I knew people who were homeschooled, but that was never a big, a big thing or ever something that my parents um, would have considered doing the homeschooling thing. And the Christian school was really because it was part of the church, right? That wasn't just a, this is what we want um, in particular for our children, but. It, it wasn't was an ideologically driven decision necessarily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It I, was a, this is what we need to do as a pastoral family, because this is what our church is doing. We had maybe one other family in a place I formerly pastored at, um, out of like a dozen or so pastoral families that had their kids go to public school. Everyone else was homeschooled. Wow. And there was wow. just this like pre-baked assumption that we would do the same thing for our children. Mm -hmm. And the more I leaned into kind of understanding why, I understood it was a generational cycle that was mm -hmm. really interesting. It has so much to do with sort of like deep-seated culture war, ideological battles that are, I don't know, maybe fruitless sometimes. I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a conversation maybe we can have later. Uh, yeah. I think we're going to ask one more question and it's just the, the silliest one ever. Was there, was there some sort of, I, this was formative for me. This is why I'm going to ask you this. Was there an age where you realized there was more than just like Christian music and you, and you discovered like, I don't know what it would be, you know, in your adolescence, like, oh my goodness, what is that? They're called Nirvana. I want to listen to, you know, was there a moment where you were, there was something not Christian that you were listening to, or did you not have that experience growing up? Well, so I listened to more secular music than Christian music, probably. <laughs> and 
part of that was my parents listened to a lot of secular music. So that was just what we did. And Christian music, you know, became when I was a teen, it became more of a thing, right? Like you could get Stephen Curtis Chapman or whatever. And so I would listen to that and to DC talk. And I went to Carmen concerts with the youth group and all of that kind of thing. Um, but we, I think that's one of the unique things about the home that I grew up in was there were not um, hard and fast rules about like, this is good and this is bad. Um, we always came back to, I mean, we always wanted everything in our family to be around who we believe Christ was and what that meant in our lives. But that didn't lead to this sort of like line in the sand, like you can't listen to this. So I, I mean, I grew up in Seattle in the nineties, right? So Nirvana, yeah. I have, <laughs> that's why, I that's the, why I asked. I would go to the punk rock concerts at the YMCA of, you know, small bands and all kinds of stuff. And so for, for me and my family, it always was, it wasn't just like this permissive, you know, there were rules and there were things that, you know, that might not be the best way to be formed is to, to go down that path for sure. Um, but it was an openness to explore and to find um, joy and beauty and meaning in a lot of places. And I really value that that was how I was raised. That sounds really cool. I had a different experience. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a moment where I, and it's so great because speaking of sort of the ideologically driven uh, culture wars of 80s, 90s, and today, and uh, I had Breakaway Magazine, which if you did mm -hmm. not know, was this teen boy magazine pumped out by Focus on the Family. Mm -hmm. um, lots of opinions about that. Uh, and in, in Breakaway Magazine, they basically rubber stamped Coldplay as an A-OK -okay band to listen to because there is nothing overtly <laughs> sinful about what they sung about, right? And, and to this point, I may have been 15 years old and I had been just asking my parents over and over again, but they, they too were, were potentially formed and, and directed by focus on the family as well on what was or wasn't appropriate. And so to that point, you know, and if it was Christian, it was okay. If it's not, then we probably should steer clear from it which ironically was exactly how they were raised and they hated it. Right. So they, they would even tell me how much they hated that, that sort of silliness of, well, if you listen to this, you're going to take your clothes off and do alcohol and, and worship the devil right. or, you know, all the, mm -hmm. the craziness. But um, from that point, from, from breakaway magazine saying Coldplay was okay. And then reminding my father of how many Beatles and Rolling Stones <laughs> And, you know, all, all the classic rocks that Led Zeppelin, um, you know, Leonard Skinner. I'm like, Dad, I can read what it says mm -hmm. on your vinyl collection. I know what you listen to. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a different home for me in high school. So I, I, was, I was allowed to listen to all the music that my friends were at, at uh, you know, at high school. But the same thing, if my parents were hearing me listen to music and they heard certain lyrics, they would come and talk to me about it. So, yeah. uh -huh. so it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic because i think so much of the way we're raised is is then obviously creating who we are but sometimes it creates what we react against often mm -hmm. right and so you're this interesting case in my mind of of a pk who is perpetuating you said a fourth generation yeah i, I mean i've known a couple pks and i think there's a stereotype out there that pks are the wildest kids at the church oftentimes have you heard that stereotype <laughs> yeah uh-huh but instead, I mean, you, I'm curious what that's like. At what point was it an actual personal call versus maybe, well, we would maybe expect 
the next generation to pastor. I mean, you're, you're talking mm-hmm. about this interesting home you you grew up in with with Nirvana possibly being in the mix, but then like generations of pastors, right? Like, what was that? What was that sort of coming of age experience like? So I I had my rebellion as about a four year old, literally. Um, <laughs> my dad thought I was going to go to prison because <laughs> I stole gum at the grocery store. I stole his Buffalo nickel collection and crawled out of a window well from my bedroom during nap time, walked across a highway in my socks and bought candy cigarettes with his coin collection. Like I, I did a lot of really kind of stole a Hello Kitty journal, right? So I was wild for a period. Um, but then I think, you know, that shifted in some ways in my life. I didn't, I didn't keep on that pathway. Um, but I, I sensed a call to ministry when I was a young teenager and I was not interested like at all. That was not, not what I wanted to do. And at that point it was mission work because that's, I think what, what I thought women could do. I'd never heard a woman preach. I'd had a woman youth pastor and children's pastor, but that wasn't really appealing to me. And so it was this call to missions. Um, And so then I, you know, come, came to a point where, where I accepted that call and said, yeah, I, that is what I want to do um, is to be obedient to what I sense God's leading me. in, and it's shifted so quickly to being this call to be a pastor. And so I asked my dad, I was like, well, is this allowed, right? <laughs> Can women be pastors? I didn't know. And he was like, yes. Yeah. So I wondered when you were going to figure it out that this was a path for you because he had noticed things in me that he thought, you know, this is this is something that maybe she could be gifted in, but I never felt that pressure or anything. Like, I don't think that that was, uh, was the case. My younger brother had that kind of like, well, I'm probably supposed to be a pastor um, and went to college to do that. And it was a nightmare, right? Like it was not the right thing. And so he changed to journalism and that was far better. And so I think being a female was different too, right? Um, Because it's not as typical. It's more becoming more typical now. But when I felt that call to be a pastor, there wasn't really that sort of, oh, yeah, the daughter might do that kind of thing yeah. in this, you know, be this next generation will be the, the female. Uh, but, yeah. How old were you when you asked him about if, if women could be pastors? I think I, think I was, so I'm trying to think it happened probably 15 or 16. So... Yeah. So a couple years before you're going to have to start making some decisions about what yeah. you're doing with your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was all in. I mean, when I, when he said, yes, I was like, all right, this is what I'm doing. And pursued it ever since. I, I stumbled across the thing you talked about being in the Seattle area. Um, you were, you were spending some formative years in Kirkland, right? Kirkland, yeah. Washington. Yep. I actually have the, the honor of preaching there occasionally. I'm sort of nice. part, part-time pastoral staff, partially shared between a couple couple congregations. And it just so happens, we probably should mention, you live in New York now. I don't even think we said that. <laughs> yes, I, I do. <laughs> I was too focused on, on having fun pointing out that you're a big deal. Um, shoot. You live in New York now, but you, you were in Washington. And I, I stumbled across this, this, uh, this bulletin I told the the pastoral staff at Kirkland I was going to be interviewing, like, please tell, please tell her I say hi. You know, like the current, <laughs> current pastor, his name is Mike Ford. He he knows all mm-hmm. about you. And there's folks that I think grew up with you that have now stepped into some sort of ministry leadership. And like, 
oh live like they had like a nickname <laughs> for you and stuff I'm like oh they know her for real That's like awesome. they, they know her way back in the day but I stumbled across a thing that made me start to think okay this is interesting because I don't know how old you would have been but it would definitely it would definitely kind of give some insight into what it was like to to be surrounded with folks that were speaking into your life but you mm-hmm. were you were the special music I think for mm-hmm. for a memorial service that it looked like your dad officiated for for a Mr. Childs, um, mm-hmm. what, what was his yeah. first name? Joe. Yeah. Joe Childs. And this was, what yep. this was funny is it wasn't even at the, I think it was at the Snoqualmie church, which is the other congregation that, that I am mostly at. And so mm-hmm. they said, Oh, you're, I just saw her name on a thing. Like, so I'm finding evidence of your existence <laughs> for the record yeah. um, from whatever. So what I, do you remember how old you were? I think I was about 15 or 16. I was asking my parents what year that was that Joe had died. And um, they thought maybe 1996. So I would have been, um, yeah, maybe 17 at that point. But one of the interesting things about Joe was I had gotten to know him through district stuff, right? I I tagged along and I'm one of those people who loved district assembly and and NMI convention and that sort of thing. And um, so he, I'd gotten to know him. He had daughters my age. And one time when he needed pulpit supply, he actually asked me as probably a 15 or 16 year old to come and to preach, to fill the pulpit for him because he'd heard me speak at one of these like district conventions. I was the youth speaker or whatever. And so that was a huge honor. Um, he got leukemia is what happened. And uh, he's good friends with my dad. And um, so just during that journey, uh, it was really I think transformational for me and trying to deal with, you know, why, why is this sort of thing happening to somebody? And um, he just was definitely an influence for me. And when he died, I actually inherited his, his library. He, he left it to me. And so I still have books on my shelf that say Joe Childs in them, um, which is just really, you know, it's just a reminder of the people all along the way that, that really did trust me for whatever reason and give me opportunity, even though I did not deserve it. I think I preached on like that hand in Daniel that writes on the wall. Like, why did I think that I had any business <laughs> preaching about that? But you know, whatever. <laughs> you let me do it. That's that's amazing. I mean, you you have these these folks speaking into your life that help you along the path. At some point, um, even you know, Joe being one of them, I don't know when your dad eventually becomes a DS. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know if that's before or after you, you sort of accept this call. And then I, I think, I think I know that you went to NNU. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Yep. Uh-huh. At some point you went to NNU to get maybe a Jesus degree. Yep. I got so, my Jesus degree and my husband. <laughs> and your, your MRS, isn't that <laughs> the right. other, the trophy that's thing right. that everyone calls uh-huh. it? So so you're the PK, but eventually you become, what is it? It's not a DK. I've never heard that acronym before. You become a DS kid. Yeah. When did all that happen? So he became a DS the year I graduated from seminary. So we were starting um, our first co-pastorate, the one that you were talking about in California, the first year that he was becoming a DS. And so I never was in the home um, during that time at all. Uh, he left Kirkland to go over to the Northwest District. and. But yeah, that was a that was kind of a unique thing. New chapters in both of our lives at the same time sure. that were pretty significant for us. You were still coming home to Kirkland then during your years at NNU. Yeah, yep, and at the seminary. Mm-hmm. And did you go straight from from undergraduate to graduate work at the seminary? Yep, yep. 
Oh my Old school. So you did like seven <laughs> or eight years straight of higher education. Yeah, eight years because I had a baby. It was supposed to be seven. But when you add a baby to seminary, then you have to take a little longer. My doctrine of holiness exam, actually, this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, Andrew was our son that was born while we were in Kansas City. And Dustin and I had been studying with our, you know, all of our millions of pages of notes and supposed to be taking our Dr. Noble doctrine of holiness exam. And I went into labor two months early on the day of the exam. And I was like, yes, I don't have to, no, not really. <laughs> but so for a while I had an F in Dr. Holiness because I'd missed the final. And I have a like old school because we didn't have cell phones in those olden days. I have like an old school photograph of Dustin sitting in the hall of the hospital and my dad proctored his his doctrine of holiness exam. So he's got his blue book out and he took his, he took his oh the day after our son was born. <laughs> so. Oh, and like no sleep, just yeah. on adrenaline and, and coffee. you know, horrifying to have a baby early, right? That early. Oh, and so, yeah. But goodness. oh yeah, I'm sure he got an A of course. <laughs> yeah. To, to clarify, uh, your husband, Dustin probably got this. Did he get the same Jesus degree? And then you all went to and did the same uh, master's or did you get dis- different, we did masters? different masters? Yeah. So our plan always had been, we, what we thought was I was going to pastor and he was going to go on and get a PhD to teach. And so I did the master of divinity and he did a master of arts in, um, history and theology and wrote, you know, a thesis and all of that. But the problem that we faced what after we graduated was anywhere that was calling me to pastor, which I did have opportunities, which was nice. Um, there was no university for him to get a degree at and any school that he wanted to go to, there was no church for me to pastor uh, in. And so we just really felt like, well, this is weird. Um, we're both called, we're both prepared. What, what are we supposed to do with this? And that's when we started to explore that kind of co-pastoring model, which has become so much more um, popular and well-known, but it was really rare uh, when we, when we were like, all right, I guess we'll make some weird, some weird resume that's all swirled together and see if a church board is interested in it didn't take long. And we were, we were pastoring a church in California together and did ministry, you know, co-equal ministry um, up until now. And so now this is different. Yeah. Cause they don't have co-DSs normally, do they? Not normally, no. Uh-uh. So rewinding back to that that first pastor, your your co-pastors. So I imagine there was some shared preaching. You both led board meetings. You probably took turns doing stuff. Is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah. So we started. I preached more than Dustin actually because he didn't think he was really you know maybe called to preach as much. And um, but then as we as we explored, you know, what it looked like to pastor together, it became much more like every other week or somebody would do a four week series and then the other one would do something or sometimes we would do quasi joint sermons. That's not my favorite thing to do, but somebody would do more of like an illustration at the end. That's a lot easier than trying to like preach back and forth, but we always try to work from our strengths. And so that I think was such an asset to our churches. Um, I'm musical and had tons of experience with kids. Dustin really loves discipleship and uh, he worked with the youth. And so that just was, you know, there were these things that we were naturally gifted at that we gravitated towards. And then the other stuff, yeah, it was, it was shared for sure. And you have your second child while you're pastoring at that church? Yeah. In California. So, yeah. How long were you there in total? We were there for just shy of six years. Six years. First pastorate out of yep. seminary, six years, uh-huh. somewhere yep. in the middle of there, you're in Haiti, staring down yep. tarantulas. 
That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then next stop, you go north. Yep. We went and pastored another church in Mountain Home, Idaho. We were there four years. And it was a, it was a really special ministry, partly because our congregation um, was highly uh, diverse, which sounds kind of funny when you think of a small town in Idaho. Yeah. But the reason was there was an Air Force base there. And so uh, people from all over the country lived in this town and people that had lived all over the world. And so it was more of a community church. And so that gave us, I think, some some unique realities of people with different experiences coming together uh, to to do ministry. And so they were, it was just, it was a phenomenal four years. It was really hard to leave from there because they were very missional and we were partnering with other churches in the community. And it was, yeah, it was a really, a really good season for us. In that decade or so of pastoral ministry, co-pastoring, uh, I always like to ask just because I want to see where we are as a de- denomination after a hundred or so years. Was there some, let's say it nicely, uh, was there some education about women being allowed to be in ministry that took place? Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I can't remember, I don't remember particular things from our first church uh, that that was an issue. And oddly enough, in both of our ministry settings, I, I would say people tried to pit us against each other, sort of like kids do with mom and dad, right? Like, oh, oh, I know mom's the easier one to get to do something. Oh, that drives me crazy. Yeah, I know. You're, they do that as a as your like board members or church members would do that to the pastors. To uh-huh. pit, well, mom yeah. said, well, dad said. Right. Yeah. So they would try to get us to, you know, like, oh, maybe if we get Olivia, we can get this. Or if we get Dustin, we can get this. And so that was sort of a unique part for us of co-ministry, but our second church, because of that community church nature, um, very many of the people didn't have, have a background with women. And I don't know exactly how many families left before we even arrived because I was a woman. We often say both Dustin and I seven, but I'm not sure if that's, that's the right number, but it was a lot. It was substantial. Uh, They didn't even ever meet me. They just were so opposed. And then there was just the kind of regular stuff that that you face where where it kind of flares up. Um, there were people in the community that were that would talk to our church people to say, "Oh, you shouldn't go to that church because you know there's a woman there." But the cool thing is the church chose a co-pastoring couple after us, and so they liked it um, and found value in it and wanted to do that again. And so I think that's a testimony to both the educational piece of what it's like to to help them to understand that, but the value that they felt in, in that shared ministry. In your life, you take a change at this point from, from my memory, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but looking back over that decade, I, I mean, being a pastor at a local congregation, obviously, as you're, you're sharing it, has some ups and downs. What's the thing that you miss most if you could look back at just local congregational ministry? What's the thing that you're like, oh, I really liked that? This is going to sound really terrible. Okay. Do you want to skip it or do you want to answer no. anyways? <laughs> so I'm bad at picking favorites. So there are lots of things. But one thing that I miss is funerals. Oh. And see, I told you that's kind of weird. Um, but the reason is, like, I hated doing weddings. And I know that's probably not very nice of me to say, but <laughs> it was always drama. And people just wanted the ceremony to be over with. And the most important things were not the most important things to the bride and groom or whatever. Right. So it always, I did not like weddings. 
Um, but funerals, people are at such a tender place and to get to journey with them and to um, help honor the people that they loved and hear the stories and then retell the stories. Like that was my, one of my favorite things. I, um, both Dustin and I would get asked by the local funeral homes in the towns we lived in to be the pastor for people that didn't have pastors. And so we spoke at so many community funerals and got to know people and um, tried to, you know, just love them through that and and demonstrate the love of Christ. And so then when we went to the college, of course, I was like, I don't want to do any funerals. Like, there's no way I, you don't want to do that. No, but I missed it there. And the church season, like the year, the church calendar is something that um, you don't do because we moved on, you know, to the Northwest Nazarene to be the chaplains and they always have breaks throughout all of the high and holy days. Like you don't do that for chapel. And now in my role as a district superintendent, it's the same, right? There's, you don't get to lead a congregation through those really special times. And so I miss, I miss sort of that special occasion kind of preaching and teaching and, and. For the record, your answer is not really weird once you explained it. Just. Okay, good. Objectively speaking. (laughs) I'll speak on behalf (laughs) (laughs) if we're recording this on like Halloween or something I don't know people can have some feelings but I'm I'll I don't know this is maybe a little bit none of my business but uh, I'm always curious when someone goes from pastoring to something that that's still ministry related but kind of at an educational higher level whatever where there's almost a little more exposure like people oh I need to know the chaplain at the university's name, right? Like there's, there's probably a little bit more vetting, I assume, that goes on with, with the, the chaplaincies at our universities or, or even at seminary or whatever. So I don't know if you, you just had a sense that you needed to apply, but I, I wonder what that transition in your mind before you even, I don't know if you applied or if you were asked, but what does that look like to go from the localized congregational ministry to something that's very different, something mm-hmm. like, 18 to 22 year olds who are only there sometime. What, what does that transition look like as far as discernment goes, but also just the practical, the practical aspect of it. So we had been on a trip to Bangladesh and China uh, right before, before the whole process at NNU started and we were training pastors and it was really impactful trip for Dustin and me. My parents were with us on that trip. We taught classes together and, uh, we just sensed that something like there was something new that was going to happen in our lives. And we didn't know what it was like, is this now the time Dustin's going to go get his PhD or one of us is going to, I don't know what, like, what, what does this mean? And it seems really strange because things were going so well in our church and it was like a healing ministry for us. Like we really um, felt, I'll be honest, our first church, we thought about leaving the ministry afterwards. It was so hard. Like there were just some really hard things. And So it seemed weird that we sensed this stirring, but we did. And um, the job for the chaplain had come open and we didn't like, we knew that, but we didn't think about it at all until people started asking us, have you thought about applying? And uh, what? No, like, why would we do that? (laughs) Right? Like, I don't, that's not the universities. We loved it, but it's not like some dream for us to go there. Uh, But enough people asked us that we thought, well, maybe this is the stirring that God is, is doing in us. Maybe, this is the next thing. Um, of course, they didn't want two chaplains. Like that was not what the job was being said, right? So we were like, well, I guess it'll be pretty clear pretty quick. If they think this is an interesting idea, they'll pursue it. And if they're like, well, they're audacious to think that we're going to hire two of them and chuck us out. 
and they thought it was interesting enough. And so we, I think we've always just been, um, walk through the sort of open door kind of people, right? Like we're not trying to jump ahead, um, or push our way into anywhere. And so, man, if they're interested and seems like this is the right thing, we'll take that next step. And if it, if it leads us in another place, we'll take that next step. And that was, that was really how it happened was bit by bit. Um, it got us narrowed down to where they ended up hiring both of us, which I think was a really uh, unique thing. Um, because having two is helpful because it's a humongous job, uh, but having both genders was helpful too, just because there are certain things that that students in that age range might not want to tell somebody of of the opposite gender, uh, and so it created an ability for us to minister in a unique way. Another thought occurs to me. That's another keep my nose out of other people's business thing. What happens? I mean, you've worked. So, how long were you at the university? I need to do quick math. Seven years. So a total of, of just shy of two decades working together, but you've already done seven years of school together. So that's 25-ish years of, of life together professionally, educationally. What happens when you're annoyed with each other and you're like, well, I have to work with you. I have to live with you. I have to like, do something. I mean, wh- what, does that, what does that element of, I mean, because discernment and the practical, like, well, we're, tr- we're applying together as well. Because this is the last so far in your life, this was the last, you know, position you guys both kind of shared together. So I can't um, help but ask that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we're weird, I think. Um, so it's not that we don't get annoyed with each other, but it worked out really well for us. And uh, one of the things that we had to do, and I don't know if this is the same for other co-pastoring couples, but there would be times where I would say, we have to, we have to find something else to talk about, right? Because otherwise we would just talk about work. And it, there wasn't anything else to talk about because either we shared an office or we were right across the hall from each other. And so I couldn't say to Dustin, oh, how was your day? Because I was there, right? Like <laughs> I know how it was. And that can become really, really hard. So I would say for us, um, more than kind of the interpersonal issues that some couples have working together, it was we need a hobby. Like, so we have something else because we'll be consumed with work. And that's part of our personalities too, is just, you know, that, that being a workaholic is the temptation. And so um, that was really the challenge was let's find something else that's interesting to talk about. <laughs> I, I immediately just had a picture of you and Dustin with like conductor hats, building HO train sets, like in a basement or something. I, Whatever it could be, right? <laughs> just something that's totally totally devoid yeah. of any ministerial tangential anything mm-hmm. but you guys made it made it work you're you're chaplaining yeah. you're at you're at NNU for a good period of time and from what I could tell it seemed like you thoroughly enjoyed your time there um but obvi- I would assume some interesting unique challenges as well being a chaplain yeah. yeah it's a very um it's a job that has a lot of similarities to being a pastor right? You do worship services, you do pastoral counseling, you do premarital counseling, you do small groups and mission trips. So there are a lot of elements that are the same, but the context is so different that those elements take on kind of a life of their own in some ways. And so, yeah, the challenge of people being required to go to your worship services and getting fined money if they they don't don't. show up, right? Like that's an (laughs) ugly thing. Ugh. And I know why we do it. And I'm, I think it's the right thing to do. And we saw people's lives transformed, but it comes with baggage, right? Like there's, there's no doubt about it. And so that, 
that changes things. Um, trying to to reach people that are at such different levels of their spiritual walk that that maybe don't even want to be there. That's a, a unique challenge and the transient nature of of school. I would I would tell people I would have like an amazing small group one semester and we would be just deep in the word and growing and friendship and it was so wonderful. And then I wouldn't see any of those students next semester because their schedule was just different. So we didn't we couldn't meet and so the ability to have continuity like you would in a local church is is really difficult. Um, and it's it's a kind of a fraught time that we're living in, right? And so higher ed is under attack in a lot of ways and suspicious and students come suspicious or parents are suspicious. And so navigating navigating that was was really hard. How do we how do we help people to see this is not a political agenda? We are trying so hard to follow after Christ. And, uh, but that's not, that's not what people assume. Um, we assume much differently of one another right now. So. Well, yeah, I always worried, especially as a youth pastor, sending kids to universities, going to university myself, hearing all the same things before I got to the universities. I just always worried that since this place is an ecosystem sort of built on and thriving from always wanting to ask all the questions about all of the things, right? Like the fact that we're going to ask questions about things and pursue, pursue ideas. There's some inherent risk in that. So mm -hmm. with it comes all sorts of assumptions about agendas and what, what you're standing for. So I can't imagine I just being on staff, whether you said a thing or not, right? Like you're associated with all of the good or bad that someone thinks is happening at this university, which may be very different than just, Oh, the community church where there's there's that lady that's up front yeah. sometimes. What's that, what's yeah. that about? <laughs> like, you may not sure. have anything to do with it, and you're still mm -hmm. sort of blacklisted on some sort of you know who knows what. So I don't. Did, I mean, did you have any direct direct kind of fallout from stuff like that where people come and talk to you about things, or was it just through Nazarene Gravelines? Or I mean, was there things that just you never never would have imagined as a pastor you would get to deal with as a chaplain that you're allowed to share? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the chaplain's job is is different than any job on campus because it's so public, right? Like our everything we did was online. And so if there was a chapel that was a little bit um, maybe edgy in some people's minds, suddenly it would have a million views on it. Not literally, but you know what I mean? You'd yeah, be like, oh, yeah. I have, what did we do on this one? <laughs> because normally <laughs> we have seven views and this time we have 300 or whatever, yeah. right? Um, and so I think that that was... Uh, hard to to process was that that it was so public. Whereas a, a professor in a class, they're not getting recorded, so people can say so and so said such and such right in the classroom. But um, that public nature of being a chaplain is is tricky. And so then I felt like you know you never knew where you were going to be in trouble. You, the students might be mad at you, or a parent might be mad at you. I mean, parents would call us and complain about chapel services. Somebody on campus, an employee, right? They might not like what what they've heard and. So it just, it, it, it's kind of a lightning rod of a position. So we we faced difficulties all the time. But again, our goal always was, how can we help people to be stretched to, to follow Christ? I, I can't remember the exact number, but 89% maybe of the students at the school profess to be Christians, right? We don't make them sign that, like you have to be a Christian to come. But so that's a whole different thing too, right? Like, chapel then needed to be how do we deepen how do we stretch how do we expand our understanding of what it means to be a disciple which meant we dealt with 
with hard things sometimes and people don't like that <laughs> and they don't but apparently you're a glutton for that because now you're a df <laughs> You talk about being everybody else's problems. Being being a being a a lightning rod and in the public space and having all these responsibilities for things that basically everyone can have an opinion on. You you continue on as a DS, and this is I've been dying to ask you this, and I know it's on a recording, so forgive me. Not (laughs) not going to try to put you on the spot, but how does that happen? Right? Like, are you BFFs with Carla Sonberg or something like that? She just call you like. Yo, I got a spot for you, Liv. Maybe she calls you Liv, right? Like, <laughs> I got a spot for you. I've been saving it. This is my turn to pick a DS somewhere, right? Like, what what does that actually look like? Because I'll just speak for myself, and I'm probably I'm sorry if this is just do it. You're fine. Please, please forgive me, but that sounds like a job I would never want to have. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I'm I I was I was ordained by your father. By by the way, like he was my ordaining DS lots of love and respect for your father would never want his job. Like I, I can say that without any sort of like character assassination of him whatsoever. Just knowing mm-hmm. what I do, like, I don't want to do that. That sounds mm-hmm. not fun. Like you have to be a, a you have to have a, a, obviously a calling, but like a personality, you know, you have to be able to, to do some stuff that I clearly, at least at this point in my life, cannot even begin to think about dealing. with. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I say it sort of in jest, but truly, you went from, from pastoring to chaplaincy, which is already a big jump, but then from chaplaincy, and, and to put this all in perspective, at least as far as I, I'm trying to see from an outsider, like you're, you're relatively young as far as the Nazarene church goes. Like You're a young woman in many people's eyes, <laughs> and you're, you're a DS. Whether you feel like you're a young woman, because I'm pretty sure you're, you have teenage boys, right? Like, yeah, I've got probably, a 19-year-old. He'll be 20 in February. So yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if we... we, we played it for him and we're calling you young he'd say what are you saying about my mother Uh, um how how does that even happen olivia yeah that was a good question (laughs) i'm wondering it myself (laughs) well i think one of the things that i never would have said to anybody before um is that going from chaplaincy to ds is actually a pretty pretty similar job in a lot of ways. And um, partly because being a chaplain is super administrative. Like you are navigating space that's not your own and multiple things and volunteer, you know, you just like it is, it's probably 75% administrative, 25% relational would be how I would, would see it just based on the rigor of, you know, a whole year of Sundays in one 14 week or 15 week semester, you've got a lot to do. And so I think that actually has helped me in some ways for sure. Uh, But how did I get here? Like technically, again, Dustin and I were sensing that there was something different that was coming down, down the road for us. Like we, we thought our time is done at the university. We didn't know what that meant exactly, um, but it just seemed like something was going to (laughs) happen. And uh, we had, we'd actually interviewed at a church and thought we would go maybe co-pastor. And um, Carla did call me and she said, you've been nominated. And that's how, that's how this, this all went down was, I think there were around 66 names given to the district advisory uh, board. And at least half of them were women's names because there was a big push on this district in particular to have women's names. They posted stuff on Nazarene women clergy and tried to get 
um, some names, which that's an important part of any of these processes. If you're looking at people of color or women or young people, just getting their names on a list can be a big deal, right? Well, they um, somehow narrowed it down to 10 people. And I was on the, the list of 10, which I thought was hilarious, literally <laughs> hilarious. So when Carla called me, I was like, well, that's precious. Like, oh, how nice. Oh, bless their hearts. <laughs> Seriously, like, this is never going to happen. And she said, if you're, if you feel like, you know, this is something that you want to consider doing, um, I need your resume. Well, our resumes had always been joint. So I had to like whip together like my own, you know, delete all of Dustin's stuff out of this thing where it was like every other or whatever. And um, I submitted it and I did that for a couple of reasons. I mean, the main reason was I don't feel like I can gripe about women not being in leadership positions if I'm not willing to put my name out there. And I didn't feel checked like this is a no, you shouldn't do this. Um, so I wasn't doing it just to do it. But I really do want to say that part of this is when you're asked to do something, my philosophy has been, if the church asks, pay attention to, to what they're asking of you, um, because that might be what the Lord wants. And so I, I submitted my resume and knew, you know, kind of the timeline of when they were going to meet or whatever. And I was like, well, that's really sweet. So when I saw Carla's like number come up on my phone or whatever, I thought, oh, well, this is, here we go. Right. Like it's going to be a no, <laughs> which is fine. Like I was not Seriously, we thought we were going to a church. Um, <laughs> and she was like, yeah, they really liked um, your resume. They want to interview you. And uh, they want Dustin to be there, too. There are three people that they've narrowed it down to. And so we're going to do that. And I like, OK, like, that'll be a good experience for me, won't it? To get that sort of <laughs> under my belt of that kind of an interview. And so we did that. And the hilarious thing is one of the other candidates um, they didn't put a waiting room. Maybe I shouldn't tell this, but they didn't put a waiting room on the Zoom room. And so um, I'm in the middle of my interview and boop, in pops one of the other candidates. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, I'm good at keeping my face. Like, you know, I was real, but everybody was frantic trying to get him out of there. And I thought, well, that's who's going to get it, right? Like it's the typical, the typical kind of person we choose. Really good guy, right? Like not, I'm not trying to be diminishing at all, but I thought, no, well, that, that's how this goes. Uh, so it's kind of hilarious that I saw, you know, the other candidate. And um, when she, when Carla called me the the next time and said that that they wanted me, I just was like, what? And Dustin had said to me all the way along, um, if it's between, if they offer you this, you have to take it. And uh, I was like, why? <laughs> like, why do I have to? <laughs> really, do I have to? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and so just his support, I think is so important because it has changed our lives so dramatically in ministry. I mean, we're still working. He works. He's my assistant. Um, like every DS wife before him. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And so we still work together, but it is, it's different. And so to have him say to me, no, this is what we must do. Um, if they offer it, because again, if this is what the church church asks, it's, we, we thought in this case, it's what the Lord wanted. And so it's not that I wanted this job. Let me tell you, it's not a, I don't think it is a job to desire. It's, a, it's hard, Yeah. Um, but it's important. And so I'm, I'm humbled and honored to, to get to do it and really honored by the way that my district is treating me too. It's been, it's been really, really good. It's been really fascinating for me to watch 
I, and again, call back to the silly, shameless little, like she, she didn't like that tarantula. I know her, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like um, I think it's interesting to kind of watch, especially right now. I, I think it was mid pandemic that you became the DS or was it just before, mm-hmm. or, I mean, something was going on that was crazy in the yeah. world. March. So yeah, it, it was, it was not a normal time to be getting a job anyways. Um, mm-hmm. But, but also, especially right now when, when so much of culture is reeling and evaluating and trying to decide, wait, wait, hold on, what do we actually care about? Right. And, and the church is not, well, the church sometimes tries to, to not care about what, what is happening. Right. But, but the mm-hmm. church is, is, is also in this, this state of evaluation of, well, shoot, we've done it a certain way a long time, but maybe, maybe that's got an expiration date. I don't know. Right. And whether it's the Sunday morning or whether it's, what we're known for ideologically, which is why we play silly games like the evangelical upbringing nonsense, or or what you um, shared a little bit about about just being a female, I, it's it's so interesting to me because whether I, I think you you're basically alluding to this, whether it's fair or not, you're you're like a representative for for women throughout the denomination, throughout mm-hmm. any ministry level whatsoever. There's a lot of sort of assumptions that might be made about you, about the process, about what what has happened. <laughs> um, but before we even get into that, I, I mean, to to put a fine point on it, I, I don't have the Nazarene archives in front of me. I'm I'm going off some things I talked to you about, and I've talked to other people about. There's only been a handful of female DSs in the United States. Do you know the number? Um, in the United States, four. I think four. Four. and mm-hmm. I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say you're probably the youngest probably yeah yeah I think so mm-hmm. probably I mean don't fact check us or do and tell us nicely that we need to learn how to google better I mean that's fine but <laughs> but that is that is a whole nother level of sort of a representation thing right mm-hmm. but, but then on the mm-hmm. flip side and this is where gosh it's not fair to you and I hate that this is even like a but this is just the the world we live in where everyone asks questions and, and makes assumptions about things. Like mm-hmm. people might so easily say, well, yeah, who cares? She was a DS's daughter. Like, of course yeah. her name got thrown into a mix. She has this position of privilege, yada, yada, yada. So I, I, I don't even know what the question really is, but I guess it's more <laughs> of just like, a, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about all that stuff. But knowing you as a person, like, I, I thought, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good choice. Like, she should have definitely been considered for yeah. that. But, do, but nice do, does that weigh on your mind? Does that, is, I, I'm, I'm reading between the lines. I'm assuming there's an awareness of that. But what do you even do with it? Mm-hmm. Aside from maybe try to do your job well, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think privilege is a good word to use. Um, because I have had a privileged experience as a female pastor. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I got screamed at in a sanctuary for being a female DS. So it's not all glorious, <laughs> but um, oh, I'm I sorry. Am not faced. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we okay. laughing at that? That's not. That's not a. That's not funny. Laugh so just, you don't cry. That's what yeah, I say. Um, sure. So you know, I've had my fair share of of people saying horrible things to me, like I mentioned, leaving our church just because of my gender. But I have had a lot of opportunity all the way back to that story. We we're talking about Joe Child. That's not typical. And, and I know that some of that has to do with the fact that my dad was loved and respected. And so then people trusted me for whatever reason. But I think anytime we have privilege, um, 
the hope would be that we would use it for good, right? So that it wouldn't be just like, I'm going to ride on the coattails of, of my dad to, to get to this place, um, but to try to do the best I can wherever I am. And I, I'd say that that's the truth with kind of truth with tokenism too, right? I, I've been tokenized lots of times, um, chosen to be on boards because I'm young and female, right? Oh, I checked two boxes. <laughs> if only, yeah. you know, maybe I was a little more diverse in my, my cultural background or my ethnicity or my race, um, man, I'd check a lot of boxes. And so I know that not only have I had privilege, but um, I've been tokenized in the, in that process too. And I had to come to a point where I said, well, I don't even care if that's what's happening. I'm just going to do the best I can where I am to use the gifts and talents and the opportunity that I have to do what I can to lead, but also then really to try to make space for others. And I think that's a lot of, of what um, I want to do wherever I am is how can I elevate others? How can I use this position that I have? You know, I can't shoehorn pastors into, into churches, but to always make sure that I really do bring women that are qualified to the table that I recommend. If I can't speak at something, recommend some another woman to always be doing things that um, help others to have some of the experiences that I've had. Because it's, I don't want to be alone in this, right? Like, I don't want to be the only female DS in the United States. That's ridiculous. And lots of lots of DSs and DS children have been appointed as DSs since mine, and they've all been men, right? Like it's not like this opened the door um, for a lot of change. So we've got to figure, I think, figure some of that out. But I think taking every opportunity that that women are given, again, it's that walk through the door that the church gives you, and then do the best that you can there, even though that's not fair. But that pressure's on people. But it is. I mean, you're, you're grinding now. You've been grinding for a long time. You're a DS. You're at this, you're, you have a seat at the table, like none that you've had before potentially, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're doing the work you're doing. You've been, well, how long have you been a DS? Six months. Okay. <laughs> Pretty fresh still. You're not a year. Yeah. Old. I, nope. I, I lost track. I, full disclosure, I was home with a sick little boy all day. So I'm, I'm not even sure <laughs> yep. on my dates. You're good. Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, you're grinding six months in, and I'm sure you've already done so many things, right? And maybe this is too early to ask, but it's, it's maybe a twofold question. Number one, um, maybe it's just for your district what, what your hopes are, and you already addressed some of it with maybe having a little more diversity and, and more opportunities given to women in particular or whatever. But at a time like, like we're in right now where almost everything seems to be on the table and being evaluated and being questioned and and um, maybe in, in very good ways sometimes, maybe not so, so good other times. What do you think the future of your district looks like with, with a young female dis- district superintendent? But more broad stroke, since you're sort of thrust into the limelight with stuff all the time. What do you think the church just in general, not even exclusively the Nazarene church, but what does just church look like moving forward, uh, particularly in light of some of the reactions against, or maybe sometimes reactions positively towards this, like, let's, let's talk about some of these tough things and see what it is that we're doing that's really meaningful and non-negotiable, like needs to continue. And what maybe is just like preferential. That's just, you know, I liked it that way. So Mm -hmm. I'm really focused on what I like, right? Like, so what does your district look like? What what does that look like for you as, as a DS? And what does the church Catholic, the Catholic church look like moving Mm -hmm. forward in your mind? Yeah. 
So upstate is is close to the coast, right? So we have this post-Christian reality that is prevalent. Um, lots of unchurched people all around. And so that's a unique challenge and different than, than some of the other parts of the country. And so our churches, many of them are struggling uh, to figure out how to navigate the, the reality of what their communities are like and to share the good news of Jesus and to invite people into sort of this community of faith where, where you're growing and changing together. And so I think there are two main things that, that need to happen on, on my district and probably every district. And one is to try to um, support and equip current pastors in their current ministries. The pandemic has just wrecked people in so many ways. And I think pastors are in a particularly vulnerable vulnerable place. And we're seeing, you know, the statistics about leaving the ministry altogether, right? Not just changing churches, but like, I'm just not doing this anymore, rising right now. And so I want to make a commitment to really support um, the pastors that are here and help them with tools and ways that they can feel strengthened to approach the realities that that we're facing and not be afraid of the changing culture around them, but to say, where is God already at work in my neighborhood? And how can we partner there uh, instead of, you know, the holy huddle of, oh man, we got to get out of this, this culture to be in this safe place, but to follow Jesus where Jesus is going. And um, I know that they're hungry for that because they're tired and they, they know that they need help. And so I feel I feel excited about being able to partner with them to, to think contextually about how to kind of revitalize where they are. But then we've got to, we've got to do church planting. And so we're working with um, some people who are coming to the district to do urban missional replicating church plants. And that's going to look different than, okay, the church is officially planted because it has a Sunday morning service with a preacher and music and a children's program. We might have some of those and that would be great, but uh, we have to think much differently. I think about like compassionate ministry centers that then meet a need that help to build relationships that create a house church or house church networks, or, you know, I don't know, I've heard of this, like planting churches at the local YMCA model that some people are using. And with my philosophy is we've got to try and try and try and try again and fail forward and have that grit, right? Like all of these things that that I learned about, you know, what students need to have at the university. It's the truth for the church too, and not to be afraid to fail, but to learn from, you know, what might be defined as, well, you know, that church plant didn't make it, but what do we learn from it so that we can keep on going and try something new? So that sort of old take care of what's already existing and support it and help it to grow into a new season of ministry with our existing churches, but then the new of how can we think creatively in this particular context. So the church in general, I think is the same thing, really. There's got to be a revitalization. And I think that actually needs to come through community and recognizing again, what the purpose of the church is, that it's not to be connected to a political party or (laughs) ideology, but (laughs) it is meant to be, you know, rooted in Christ. And when we do that, I mean, what, what happens? Well, we love our neighbors and, we're transformed by that love that Christ has for us that is is seen as we reach out to others. And so I think getting out of these sort of bubbles of my ideology and your ideology and back to what it means to be the church and the parish church, I think is is a vital 
model we need to go back to really being embedded where we are, loving our neighbors, not being afraid of, of the culture around us, but knowing that God is at work. I mean, good grief. We believe in provenient grace, right? Like that's one of the things for me that's like, why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people at all times. That is amazing. And that should give us hope and not need to draw lines to push people in and out, but to say, oh, wow, let's honor what it is that God's doing in you and take you deeper, right? Like let's go deeper there. But yeah, I'm, we've got to figure out how to break down that fearfulness um, to have that holy, holy boldness, courage. In a way, are you, are you almost excited at a, a sort of forced refresh? Like, hey, we have to think differently. Is it, does that excite you or does that stress you out? No, I think that's, it's really helpful actually. And um, so at our pastor's retreat, which was the first time we could really gather together and met some pastors, but we hadn't had any, you know, like big group or anything. And um, we did lament, listen, and dream was the theme. And I'm, I'm doing my doctor of ministry at Nazarene Theological Seminary. And I'd had to put together a sort of demographic, ethnographic report for one of my assignments. And I thought it'd be really interesting to to present that to my pastors and see what they think. But I wanted to listen to them first. So we did roundtable discussions and I had them talk back to me about, you know, what's going on in your local context, what's good, what's hard, what can the district do for you, right? Like just free for all, what, what do you need? And um, all of that kind of stuff. And I told them I was going to do a presentation that evening and I would change it based on our discussion if I needed to, because, you know, I was just putting that together as a homework assignment. So it might not be accurate. I don't it's my own perception, but it was amazing how it was. I didn't have to change any of it. Um, and I told him, I said, I think that is so exciting for us that we're on the same page already. We recognize the challenges. We see the need. We have that hunger for something to change. So we don't have to get, get to like, okay, now I have to convince you that this is where we are. We all know this is where we are. And it's a challenging place to be. But that's much better to be in agreement on on that reality uh, so that we can move forward. So I really do feel excited about it. It's scary. I mean, it, it is scary. And you, you hit on it, right? People are watching um, because there's this weird woman over here in upstate <laughs> New York, this child or whatever, you know, I don't know. Um, and I've already closed a church and I'm probably going to have to close more. So I'm always like, oh, boy, what are they going to think, right? Um, but you, you probably have a DS report card. I know like lead pastors have report cards. I'm sure you have. I don't know. Do I? Higher <laughs> I stakes. Nobody told me about that. <laughs> have a report I have to fill? No, I'm... Maybe you'll find out after a year, huh? <laughs> yeah. So it is, it's exciting, but it is, you know, you do know, well, people are going to be watching. And so hopefully we, we just can press on and that's not going to be the pressure. The pressure is to be faithful to what God's calling us to. And so I'm not afraid. Well, that's refreshing and encouraging for me. Um, full disclosure, one of the one of the hopes I had um, having you on here was that you know you would kind of be this example of I'm just trying to work towards the hope that I see, like the the change that I want to be a part of. That that maybe you know I can affect something positive with with what I'm mm-hmm. doing in my life. Um, and and additionally, the podcast has this theme of generational discourse or lack of it or inviting or whatever so to wrap up our time together I thought I would ask a question that kind of comes back to this because I think I think it's maybe at the heart of a lot of this and sometimes we don't even want to name it because it might be mean or whatever 
Um, but man, if you spend any time on social media, if you read the news, if you're on anything uh, connected to the internet, you'll see that boomers don't like millennials. You'll see mm-hmm. that the older folks don't like the younger folks. The younger folks are trying to just like, can you go on and like, just get out of the way so we can do X, Y, and Z. And there's sort of these camps that seem, they're not always, I mean, with every stereotype, it's not all encompassing, but within mm-hmm. the church, especially, there seems to be a lot of fear and a lot of frustration. Some of the fears seem to stem from this, please don't take away this thing I've spent much of my life within. That was meaningful, mm-hmm. informative. I actually mm-hmm. don't want it to go away. But then on the other side, you might have folks like me that are seen as sort of like, I want to burn it all down, right? Like it's old, antiquated, out of date, and I want to burn it all. And for the record, I get some feedback. That's not actually my position. For the record, <laughs> maybe it comes across that way. Uh, but but what I'm getting to in question form is that we probably need a little bit of both. And we need to have this thing where we hold on loosely. And maybe we're along for the ride. But mm-hmm. but if you're speaking to some of our listeners, whether it's just as a DS or just as a guest on the show, I mean, in as pastoral a way as I know you can you can be, what, what do we do with those that are afraid of having things taken away that have been so meaningful across the, the decades they've been alive? Or, or what do we do to sort of encourage, but maybe help redirect passion and energy of those that might be seen as someone like me who's just like, just get out of the way. I'm going to burn it all down and start fresh because it's all broken. Like what, what do we do pastorally to lead these folks to either work together or to just like maybe realize that some of their fears and assumptions are, are a little extreme. I, I don't know. What do we do with that, Olivia? You're a DS. You wrote a book. Obviously, you know all of the answers to these questions. So I need you to tell me. I think that's a great question. And I think that's the, the challenge. I'm sure it's been the challenge forever, right? In one way or another. But the church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. And so I think it's, I think it's stronger it feels like a stronger divide between the generations maybe. Um, And that's, I think one of my major challenges is I have some churches that I need to fill and I have some pastoral candidates that would be wonderful. And I would love to have on the district, but I'm not sure that they're a good match because of what you're talking about. And so finding the kinds of pastors to enter existing pulpits that can be bridge builders, um, I think is maybe the, the phrase that, that I'd like to use, that they can honor and care for the people that are existing, that are in that place that you're talking about of, I like it this way, this is the way it's always been. And so don't burn that down, but also create something new. And that is so hard to do simultaneously. Uh, and I, but I think, I think that's part of the reality of where we we're going to need to be. And that's an exhausting place to be right? You're getting pulled in two different directions, right? You've got the ones that are like, no, we've got to go back. And the others that are like, no, we've got to move forward. And to stand in that middle place is uncomfortable. And it requires you to challenge both sides, right? And that's not very fun either. Um, But I think that that's part of the solution is, is pastors that understand there's not just one thing that's the most important thing in in the method of how we do this. Of course, the message should stay the same, right? Our methods should always be changing, but the message should stay the same. Um, And so I think that's part of it is, is that bridge building. But then I really do feel like that equipping of what's existing and then starting new things, we've got to, we've got to think that way more. Um, And that's not as, 
as fun to think like, oh, well, I've got to plant something, right? Like that's additionally exhausting. And if I've got to be co-vocational, that's, you know, really, really hard too. And that's more of the reality. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have a great answer, but for those churches that have this existing corpus of people, I need a pastor that's going to honor them while also dreaming new dreams. And that's tricky. Um, and for people that were planting, you're going to have to become creative, right? Financially, because there's not a lot of money. And what does that mean for the district, right? So one of the ideas that we have is could the district have its own 501c3 to raise money, to have grants so that little churches that don't have the bandwidth and pastors who are exhausted, but need resources, you know, we can be the clearinghouse to help provide some of those things so that the burden isn't so great because what you're talking about really is the reality. And um, I think that's, again, where the community matters and hearing one another well and living life together and being embedded in ministry in a community with one another can help to transform some of that. So it's not us against them in the church. It's just us. And we're different, but we come to a place of honoring one another. That's the dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> not sure it's gonna gonna be always the reality, but that's the dream. Might not always come up roses, but but the the idea that we continue to try, that we don't grow mm-hmm. weary of doing good, that we're willing to think outside of the box and methods may may be explored for the sake of relationships, right? For the sake of mm-hmm. community. I, I'm good with that answer. I I I would say yeah. I don't think I have a vote or anything. I'm just asking the questions. But well, I send like me the your answer. resumes. Whoever wants to send their resume to pastor one of these churches where you stand in the middle, I've got them. So come on, come on to update. We will we'll put her contact information in the show notes for real. Perfect. Uh, oh Olivia, you're gonna be the DS one day. That's like oh, we need to get on her district. Oh my goodness. Like all the things <laughs> I wanted to do, I'm probably going to be approved to do on her district. Right. Well, we'll see. We'll see how long they keep me. Right. Like that's the, <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to check back with you and see, right. Yeah. We'll, we'll have uh-huh. a follow-up or something. Yeah. Olivia, thank you. Or I don't know. Can I call you Olivia? I don't know. Um, yeah, Olivia, thank you so much for your time and for, for uh, being willing to jump on this podcast with me. Let me ask some questions about your life that might have been personal i don't know if i've had as personal a conversation where i was the one asking the questions of a ds as i've had today so this has been been a fun experiment i mean i've never been on this side of the conversation so thank you for giving me the time and and giving me the ability to do that it's been an honor yeah well it's been great for me too and good to to reconnect with you after our tarantula experiences. So here's another, another one and lots less scary than the tarantulas, right? <laughs> yes. I'll have to, I'll have to, once we're off the air, I have another tarantula story, but I'll just tell you, it won't, it won't necessarily be on the podcast. Okay. Sounds good. Olivia, thank you for the time. Uh, for our listeners, I, I'm not joking. We'll put some contact information in the show notes. If you're a, a pastor that's interested in seeing what's going on, we'll make sure you can find her district and her contact information. For those of you that have been longtime listeners, I have a a quick announcement I need to make before we wrap up the show. The format is changing. I'm going to have a a little blip of an announcement as a separate episode, but there might be only one more episode. We'll see what happens, but there might be only one more episode before this year's end, and the Millennial Pastor will change. Next year, you're going to have different hosts. You're going to have a little bit of a different format, and it's going to be, I'm excited about it. Stay tuned for the little announcement. We're going to tell you more about what's happening. We might even have some trailers for you coming down the line. 
For those that have been longtime listeners, we thank you. Uh, if you haven't listened before, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing. It helps algorithms do things to tell other people about the things. But in general, we just appreciate the chance to share stories like Olivia's, and we hope you have appreciated hearing them as well. And we would love for others to hear as well. I've been your host, Josiah. This has been the Millennial Pastor Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more stories about young people in ministry, please stay tuned for the next episode.